tonight, we're going to be talking about breathing underwater. Yeah. And we're going to focus on 1 Corinthians 13 uh, by way or route of Acts 18. And somehow we'll find ourselves talking about breathing underwater. It'll happen eventually, I'm sure. Uh, But first, I want to talk about a few ways of living life. One of the ways of living life is you live life in the past. And you dwell there, and you're spending your entire time in the present trying to recreate the past. As if that were something that was possible to do. And here's the thing about living that way. If you live that way, you're not living in reality because... If you're trying to recreate the past, here's the thing. Our memories are so deceiving. When we experience any kind of like struggles in the present, what our minds will do with the past is we will become really fond of the past and we will exaggerate all the good things about the past and we will downplay all the struggles that we might have had in the the past. So we'll have this kind of nostalgic feeling about what used to be and then in the present we will spend our life looking behind us trying to recreate that in the here and now. Uh, there's that way. There's also what I call the immature way of living in the here and now. Now, I think it's good to live in the here and now. We'll talk about that eventually. But the immature way of living in the here and now is wanting instant gratification for what I can have for myself right now. Living in the immature here and now is all about gratifying myself and making myself feel good and kind of engineering my own happiness. I don't think that's the way we're called to live either. And then there's having a view of the future. And I think that's also a good thing. But it can, be, it can become a bad thing when you're only living in the future and when you're not living in the here and now. When somebody's head is daydreaming all the time, living off in space, and they're living in an imagined reality of the future and they don't experience the presence of the here and now. They're not living in reality. And so all of these are ways of living that happen when we look all around us, we see people doing this, but these are not advisable ways to be living. So let's talk about this. Paul, as he uh, converts to Christianity after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he then turns his life into a life living for the sake of the gospel. And he wants to take the gospel to major urban centers within the Roman Empire so that as he goes into those urban centers where culture is created and formed in these places that influence the surrounding areas, these major urban centers, when he's got gospel pumping out of those urban centers, what will happen is it will flow out to the rest of the world. So he went to three major urban centers uh, to plant churches and to raise up leaders and to establish people in the gospel of Jesus Christ and training them in what it means to live... (laughs) 
know if it's helping, bro. Let's help it. <laughs> Training people in what it means to live on the way. Right? Uh, so these three urban centers were Antioch, Ephesus, and Corinth. And he went to these centers and he went with an apostolic mission, which means he's not going there to make himself comfortable and receive what he can and build up glory for himself. But because of his apostolic mission, he's there to create something and then move on. So what he does on his missionary journeys is he visits this place and what we're going to focus on I don't, I don't even know what that is. All right. Uh, anyway. So as he comes to the urban center of Corinth, he starts building up a church there and he starts founding them in the gospel and he begins raising up leadership to kind of take his place what? when he goes away. <laughs> Ridiculous. I didn't know you can make that much noise when you play pool. Uh, uh, trying to be down here while you guys are up there. I know. He's trying to get through the ceiling. <laughs> all of a sudden, we're sitting here doing a Bible study, and then he comes crashing through the ceiling. Um, so in Corinth, uh, Paul starts raising up leadership. Right? And he's got these two people that are really helping him out, um, Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And Aquila and Priscilla are tent makers, right? And that should ring a bell because what we know happens is Paul then joins with Aquila and Priscilla in being a tent maker. And the reason that he's a tent maker is because his purpose in this apostolic mission is not to be gaining glory for himself or to be putting a burden on the people that he's ministering to with the gospel. So his purpose then becomes to make tents for the sake of not being a burden on the people that he's ministering to. And um, what happens in this place of Corinth is he spends a couple years there. He starts raising people up. They're doing good. They know Jesus. And everything seems to be good. So we read about his encounter in Corinth in Acts 18. And we'll get to that. Um, and then he starts going uh, to Ephesus after that. And let's read what's going on here. In uh, Oh, my goodness. Uh, in Acts 18, about what's going on in Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had condemned all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was on the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he's spending this time joining Aquila and Priscilla in their venture of being a, um, tent makers as he's doing his ministry in the synagogues. And then as he's in Corinth and he's establishing this church, 
he, I feel like he kind of gets this sense about these people that they're kind of like his kids. And he kind of cares for them in that way that parents care about children. And so when he goes to Ephesus and he's moved along on his missionary journey, because that's where the gospel is calling him, he gets a letter back from Corinth to him. Right? We always hear about him writing to Corinth. But he gets a letter from Corinth writing to him from Chloe's household. And they say, listen, things are not good here in Corinth. Uh, there's, there's idolatry and sexual immorality. And people are causing division and competing with one another over who they follow. And basically what's happening is people are no longer centered on the gospel. This is not what the gospel is about. And I imagine what Paul feels is like he's left home and left his kids at home with the babysitter and he gets a call from the babysitter and he go, the babysitter goes, listen, the kids are fighting over the Legos. The kids are fighting about whose Lego belongs to who and they're both convinced it's theirs and I don't know what to do. And this is what people are doing, not with Legos, but with the gospel, right? And what happens as they're arguing over the gospel, they're arguing about who's more right when it comes to the gospel. And what this is causing in the body is this is causing this division because they're no longer caring about each other and building one another up with the gospel, but they're caring about themselves and what glory they can attain to themselves because of the names attached to the gospel. So one person is saying, well, I follow Paul. Another person was saying, well, I follow Apollos. And somebody who's really righteous, they go, well, I follow Jesus, right? And Paul's looking back at the situation. He's getting reports from Chloe's household. And he's saying, listen, guys, you're painting the gospel with the wrong colors. You're not being what you were meant to be. This is not the way I taught you to live before I left. You are no longer living life on the way. You are living a life that is about satisfying yourself. So this letter goes on. He's correcting some stuff. And then he comes to this section in the letter. Chapters 12, 13, and 14. Chapters 12 and 14 are kind of like these bookends, right? And both 12 and 14 are talking about gifts of the Spirit. And right wedged in the middle of this talk about gifts of the Spirit is this chapter that has to talk about the supremacy of love. And you're like, why is the supremacy of love interrupting the two chapters on the spiritual gifts? Well, I think here's why. Gifts of the Spirit that are not operating in the presence of love tend to be destructive to the body of Christ. And that is the exact opposite of what they're supposed to do. They're, they're intended to build up the body of Christ. But what people are using these gifts for is competing with one another. And this causes this inherent division and disagreement of the church where people are saying... 
Will I speak tongues? Will I prophesy? You know, and then the, will I, you know, do this or whatever? But the point is, they're doing this not in the presence of mature love, but they're doing this in the absence of love. So, in the absence of love, these gifts of the Spirit, although they're still gifts, these gifts are immature. And they're doing the exact opposite of what they're supposed to do. And so I think the purpose of him putting this chapter, chapter 13, right in the middle of these two chapters about the gifts of the Spirit, is for telling people that right in the center of what it means to operate in the gifts of the Spirit, the very heart of it, the very center of it, what it means to do that is that you love one another. Remember like the scriptures say, a new command I have for you, that you love one another. And so what he is essentially telling this Corinthian church is he's saying, I no longer want you to be fighting over whose Legos these are, right? I no longer want you to be fighting over who's got the best gifts. What I want you to do is I want you to be growing up, maturing in the presence of love so that all of a sudden as you're acting out the gifts of the Spirit, you're no longer focused on what kind of glory you can attain for yourself. But it's almost like Paul being a tent maker. Your gifts are about not putting a burden on other people. All of a sudden, when gifts are operated in the presence of love, it's no longer about the person who is doing the gift. It's no longer about the worship leader or about the teacher or about the person who is leading or prophesying. It's no longer about that person. All of a sudden, that person almost starts to fade away. And what happens is the real essence of that gift Operating to build up the body of Christ. So let's read, actually, 1 Corinthians 13. See what Paul's saying about this. He says right at, towards the end, verse 8. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, as we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face now I know in part then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known verse 13 final verse so now faith hope and love abide these three but the greatest of these is love now what's going on why is he talking about mirrors and what is all this about but here's the thing Corinth was this hub for producing mirrors, right? Like, that's what they were known for as a city. They, it was a city of commerce, and they produced mirrors. 
But mirrors in the ancient day, like in the first century, they were not mirrors like we have today where you go and look in a mirror and it's all flat and clean and good and it's actually reflecting the image that's on the other side of it. I guess you could say like mirrors in that day were not as technologically advanced, right? The way mirrors were is they were kind of warped pieces of metal and they were polished as much as they could and there were special kind of uh, minerals and stuff that would reflect. And when you looked in a mirror in those days, you wouldn't see accurately. You wouldn't see yourself accurately. You would see a distorted, dim image of yourself. And what Paul is relating to that to is the way we see life now. Remember we talked about those ways that we live life? People that are living life in those kind of offbeat, immature, not producing anything ways, they're living life as if they're looking in a dim mirror. They don't know exactly what's going on in the mirror. They just have a vague image of what's going on. And it's not actual reality being reflected back at them. It's some kind of distorted thing that's bent and curved in the wrong places that gives them the gist of what's going on, but not really what's going on. And what Paul is telling us by this is he's saying living in the current age as it is can be deceiving like looking in one of those old mirrors you see things but you're tainted by your desires and your desires are kind of to do good but kind of to serve yourself and and attain glory for yourself and lift yourself up and that's what you're doing by these spiritual gifts and by arguing about which teacher you follow And what this all reminds me of, it's like looking in a mirror that doesn't reflect you accurately. But what he's saying is, I want you to live in a way that's like breathing underwater. There it is. What do I mean by that? Um, When I was a little kid and I was, I I believe I was six years old, like in first grade, uh, I very vividly remember learning how to swim. Uh, we lived in Rancho Cucamonga, and we lived in like a townhouse, and my stepdad was a really good swimmer, like he did water polo, and he was a lifeguard and all this stuff. And so he is the one who, when I was six years old, he taught me how to swim in our little community pool right there. And I remember like swimming back and forth on the steps so that if I like sank, I would catch myself on the steps and like come up, you know. And it took me a little while, and he like kind of held me at first, and I had to, I had to figure out how first how to doggy paddle, and then I got a little more brave, you know. And then I held my breath underwater for so long, and I come back up, and it's like five seconds, you know. Uh, and I remember I, I started having dreams about being in our pool because I was trying so hard to be able to swim. And in my dreams, which they were kind of scary, so I don't know, you could call them a nightmare or something. I would go into the deep end, which I wasn't ready for yet. And I would start to sink in the deep end. And in my dream, don't do this, I wouldn't recommend it. 
in my dream when I was stuck under the water and I couldn't get back up, I would breathe underwater. But I like couldn't take a really deep breath. I had to t- it only worked if I took really shallow breaths. But, for, but somehow I was able to breathe underwater and get small amounts of oxygen enough to like figure out what I'm doing and then get back to the surface or something. But I remember I used to be able, in my dreams, to breathe underwater. And I think breathing underwater is a good metaphor for what Paul is telling the Corinthians to do. Here's why I say that. The water seems to be overwhelming. It seems to be a very fearful thing when you don't know how to swim. It seems to be overwhelming to the point of where you just want to collapse on the ground or at the bottom of the pool, and that wouldn't be good. And what Paul is telling them is he's saying, the reality of this present age is like being in water and not being able to swim very well. Sometimes it feels like it's closing in in on you. Sometimes you experience things like suffering and struggle and things you don't have answers for and you've got all these questions for God like, I can't find the answers in the Bible. Tell me now or else I'm going to freak out. You know, And what he's telling us to do in light of these sufferings and in light of these failures and in light of these questions where we feel like we're just going to be overwhelmed and drown, Paul's reminding Corinth, and I think Jesus is reminding us, you've got to breathe underwater. You've got to step out and do the seemingly paradoxical thing that seems impossible when the water is closing in. You've got to choose to love other people and to build them up and to live for their sake when you don't feel like it. And you've got to choose to walk into this maturity that feels really uncomfortable. When it feels like breathing underwater is just going to drown you. He's talking about the age to come. And what he's talking about in this whole idea of breathing underwater, he's talking about living in the age to come. When everything is right in the world, when everything is perfect, when the lion lays with the lamb, when there are no more tears and no more sickness and no more disease and death and illness and all these things, living in that age, in an age where you can drown, breathing life from that age in something that feels like it's just going to overwhelm and suffocate you. And I want you to think about this. When God made Adam, Adam was a lifeless being created from the dust of the ground. And I imagine he was all ready to go. Everything was in place, all the bones and muscles and sinews and structures and organs and heart and blood in the veins. 
He was all ready to go, but he was not alive. Right? And what does God do? How does he bring him to life? He breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. And all of a sudden, Genesis says he's a living creature. He is alive. He's got something to go do on this earth. And he's got something to live for. And he's somebody. And he's got a purpose and meaning and significance for his life. When moments before he was just a a heap of stuff on the ground, lifeless. But God in his goodness breathes the breath of life into Adam to equip Adam to go do stuff with his life. I think that's what's going on here. When we're in an age where it seems overwhelming and suffocating and when there's questions we don't have answers for and there's, we don't know which way to go at the fork in the road. Jesus from the future, where the breath of life is, like Jesus from heaven, filled with life that never ends, breathes life into us just like he did to Adam. To all of a sudden this dead thing on the ground, this heap of bones and muscles and skin, this dead thing all of a sudden becomes alive. So then all of a sudden the the fear of drowning is no longer compelling us. The fear of not being number one is no longer compelling us. The fear of losing is no longer compelling us when we live. But it's the breath of life and the very same breath of life that he breathed into Adam. The breath of heaven. Allowing us to breathe underwater. That now we can live life like heaven now in a place that is not heaven. And that's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace. God, thank you for circumstances that are overwhelming. And thank you that you are good enough to breathe life into us and to give life when we are dead and to resurrect us and build us into something new and help us learn how to grow and to mature and to not be little kids fighting over Legos, but to walk in that maturity and walk like Jesus and do life in your way. To be fulfilled in our spirits in such a way that we can give life to those around us. That we can be generative people. We can generate life. Empower us to do that. In your name, amen.